0: Loving Heavenly Father, apart from your Spirit, the cross will be foolishness this morning. But with your Spirit, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Help us to see it this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, when I was young, I took piano lessons for six years. And by took, I mean my mom made me. And the only song that I can still play from memory is, wait for it, Beauty and the Beast, Disney's version. (laughs) And when Christy Danner was here for her first time, or her first few months of working here, she was in this room with me and James, and I sat down at this piano and I started playing it, and that wasn't the best. James started singing it. (laughs) Christy was scarred for life, but don't ask... I'll never play it again, and James will never sing it again. It was a one-time event. You know, most of us are really familiar with the story, Beauty and the Beast. It's a very popular one in our culture. Why? Well, it's a story about a man who was once very handsome, living in a grand palace, but then a curse fell on the castle, on the prince, and his heart became dark, and he secluded himself in the castle. And he took the form of a beast with this glistening, drooling snout and these curly, defying tusks. And he was always in a bad mood. Until what? Until the beauty showed up. And as the beauty loved the beast, he became beautiful himself. The beauty loved the beast, and he became beautiful. Now, why does this story resonate with us? Well, I would submit to you this that the beast reminds us of ourselves. And there's this hope that there's a beauty that will transform us. And I think as we look at the story in this section of Scripture, it becomes very apparent of the beastliness that is present in all of us and the beauty of Jesus on the cross. When those two things collide, when we understand our beastliness, and when we see the beauty of Jesus on the cross, that is when we begin to discover grace. And I want to take us through this story in three parts this morning. I want to look at the breadth of the derision, then I want to look at the depth of the derision, and then finally, we want to see the grace and the derision. Let's first look at the breadth of the derision. As I read this story, maybe you noticed there were several groups of people that are mentioned in this passage, and all of them were hurling insults at Jesus. The first group mentioned in verse 38 are the soldiers. Now, Matthew provides some other details about the soldiers that the other gospel writers don't provide, like placing a staff in his hand, intending to mimic that of a king, and then the soldiers kneeling down before him. Now, remember, the soldiers are Romans. They're legionnaires. They're disciplined, trained, fighting men. Most of them single. They're Gentiles. And they mock Jesus. Now, the second group of people in this story are the robbers or the thieves mentioned in verse 38. And last week, James told us about these robbers, about these thieves. Perhaps they were even revolutionaries. They were not sanitized, likable criminals. They were not like Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief. Cary Grant was an actor. (laughs) People liked him, even when he played a bad guy. That's not these criminals. They were hardened, guilty criminals who were guilty and were on death row for the sins that they had committed, and they mocked Jesus on the cross. Now, the third group that's mentioned in this story are the passers-by in verse 39. So you need to recall that during this time, the Passover was beginning in Jerusalem. So all of the Israelites from all over the country were coming to the city to offer the sacrifice in the temple. They would have just um, eaten the paschal lamb... Uh, eaten uh, the vegetables and uh, eaten the unleavened bread and they would have drank the wine and then this day was not yet sundown and so the Sabbath laws were not yet in effect and so perhaps many of the Israelites were out for a stroll. Perhaps some of them were going to the grocery store to pick up a few more last items and as they walked around on the roads, they saw these three young men crucified on a cross and they stopped and they hurled insults at Jesus. You know, they were celebrating the Passover which was what? Remembering that they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt through the death of a lamb. And now they see the Lamb of God and they mock Him. They can't see who He is. The Israelites, men and women, God's covenant people, oppressed, they mocked Jesus. But not only did they, there's one more group in this story. The chief priest describes the elders in verse 41. They all represent principal groups of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court in Israel. They were the educated, the religious, the judicial class. These are the sophisticated leaders of Israel with PhDs. They were scholarly and learned, and what did they do? They mocked Jesus. Do you see the breadth of people that are mocking Jesus? From Romans to Jews, from Gentiles to God's covenant children, from criminals to educated, they're all mocking Jesus. Why? Now, they might have had different reasons, but underneath, they all had the same heart reason for mocking Jesus. Maybe some of you are familiar with St. Augustine. He was a theologian and philosopher in the 4th century. And one of his most fascinating um, books or writings was Confessions. And in it, he frames his story as the prodigal son. You see, Augustine was raised by a Christian mother, Monica, but in his teens and in his twenties... He absolutely went wild, taking a lot of mistresses. And in Confessions, it's a retelling of his story and how he came to faith in Christ. And he committed some spectacular sins, but the one that he retells in this book is about stealing some pears from a neighboring orchard and then throwing the pears at some pigs. I've done a lot of worse things than that. But Augustine says that this story illustrates that he was after shame for its own sake. He essentially said, why did I break into the pear orchard and steal pears when A, I wasn't hungry and B, I don't even like pears? He realized he did it because somebody told him he couldn't. He didn't have any interest in the pears except they were forbidden and he says, this reveals The core of my heart that cries out, Nobody tells me how to live. You know, truth comes in a lot of odd places. I was sitting in Chipotle this week, staring at my brown paper bag that my burrito came in, and this quote by Judd Apoteau was printed on my burrito bag. It said, Don't be a jerk. Try to love everyone, give more than you take. And do it despite the fact that you really only like about seven out of 500 people. Thank you. I'll have some guacamole and a side of morality. But you know what? There's some truth in there. There's some truth in there that most of us really are jerks. We have to be told to love because our natural disposition is to love ourselves more than we love anyone else. We prefer to receive rather than to give. And to be honest... We don't really like that many people. And I'd submit to you, the seven people that you actually like, you only like them because they make you feel good about yourself. They meet some need in your life, and so it's actually a selfish act that you like those seven people because you like the way they make you feel about yourself. Truth comes in all these different places, showing us that from Romans to the religious, underneath, our hearts are all the same. You see, we have this innate selfishness. We all have a deep heart problem that the Bible calls sin. And it means that we will love ourselves more than we will love anything else in the world. More than we will love God. More than we will love our spouses. More than we will love our children. It's why when I get home and I get frustrated because the kids are taking up my time. Because my selfish heart wants what it wants you see before a holy god we all have the same condition we all need grace everyone in this room young and old rich and poor punk get, punk kids and phds 20 year members of mpc and those of you who showed up today thinking this was McLean bible church we're all the same you know it happens uh, we hear it in Discovering Grace. Well, I was looking for McLean Bible Church, and I came here by accident, and it turns out I actually kind of like you guys, so I stuck around. <laughs> Welcome. We're glad you're here. <laughs> Regardless of how you got here, all of us are the same apart from grace. We are all the same. And now that we've seen the breadth of mocking in this story, let's look at the depth of the derision. You see, the crucifixion was personal. As these various groups, they mocked Jesus. They hurled insults. They stripped him and they jeered at him. And this is my question for you. Why? How could this young man man who spent his entire adult life communicating hope to marginalized groups of people who healed the sick, who made the lame to walk, who comforted the morning, who preached a Sermon on the Mount. He lived a life of poverty. He raised the dead to life. Why would he end up on trial, hung on a cross, being mocked so mercilessly? I'd submit to you it happened because Jesus claimed to be more than just a great teacher. He was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the king of the universe. Jesus was claiming to be a greater prophet than Elijah or Elisha. He was claiming to be a greater priest than Aaron. He was claiming to be a greater king than David. He said that he was the son of the living God, and that is offensive. You see, when you are confronted by the claims of Jesus Christ, and who he was and what he did, you cannot remain a spiritual Switzerland. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. The cross will either attract you or it will repel you. You will either adore him or despise him. No one hates Mother Teresa, yet thousands despised Christ. He was crucified because of who he claimed to be, and he was mocked because of who he claimed to be. He was mocked in three ways. He was mocked as a prophet. Look at verse 40. It says, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You're hanging on a cross, Jesus. I don't see you rebuilding this, you know, magnificent temple in three days. If you can't do that, you're not really a prophet. I don't have to listen to all the other things that you've said that you claim to be the way the truth, and the life. That you called us a den of robbers. That you called us to repentance. See, you're not really who you said you were and I don't have to listen to your voice. I can dismiss you as a raving lunatic. And it's easy to point fingers at other people. But you know, honestly, we mock Jesus as a prophet. I mock Jesus as a prophet. Every time... I don't take seriously the Word of God in my life. I mock the Bible. I mock Jesus. Jesus says that every strand of your DNA belongs to Him, and yet we resist, we rebel, and we hate Him for it. We read passages in Scripture, and we know what we ought to do, but we say, I don't want to love my wife. I don't want Jesus to tell me about my body or my finances. I know the Bible says this, but God would want me to be happy, so I'm going to do X. We mock Jesus all the time as a prophet when we don't take seriously the Word of God. The second way that people in this story mock Jesus is they mock Him as a priest. Look at verse 42. It says, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. Notice something about that. His enemies acknowledged that he saved others. That he did miracles. The historicity of Jesus is undeniable. Why was it this way for them? Because they couldn't deny the resurrection of Lazarus. He's eating a hamburger right next to them. I know they didn't have hamburgers during that time. But he's living, breathing, walking. They can't deny the resurrection of the daughter of Jairus. She's alive. Or what about the woman who bled for 12 years who saw every doctor in the land who spent every last cent to be healed? She was healed when she touched the hem of the garment of Jesus. You can't deny the historicity of Jesus. So what do they do? They say, He's performing these miracles by the power of Satan. And if it was truly of God, He wouldn't be hanging on this cross. He can't even save Himself. He saved others but he can't save himself, some priest. How do we mock Jesus as a priest? We do it when we mock his sacrifice. You know, James talked about last week, the way we do it is we're more impressed with our sin than we are our Savior. Do you know that if you have repented of your sin and you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you are still wallowing in guilt and shame and you can't forgive yourself, You are mocking the sacrifice of Jesus saying, you didn't do enough on the cross to atone for my sins. Do you know another way that you mock Jesus? You mock Jesus every time you refuse to forgive someone else. You say, what they did was so horrific, it wasn't enough what Jesus did on the cross. I need to extract a little bit more punishment from them Because Jesus didn't do enough on the cross. We mock Jesus as a priest when we don't forgive ourselves and we don't forgive others. If we don't joyfully repent, if we don't consistently repent, and if you only fixate on your failings, then you are insulting your Savior. The third way they mocked Jesus is they mocked him as a king. What did they shout? They shouted, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They wanted him to do another sign even though he had calmed the winds and the waves with just his voice. They went on to mock him as a king and they said, you know what? He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. For he said, I am the son of God. Do you know how they were mocking him? They were essentially saying this. If God is pleased with him, He would not suffer. You're too weak to be a king. You couldn't be the Savior. Watched a bad movie last weekend, but I didn't pay for it. It was a free on-demand weekend with Verizon. So I watched The Legend of Hercules. And it's a story about Hercules getting kicked out of his kingdom and, you know, he comes back in. He's going to overthrow his, his wicked stepdad. The peasants are rising up in revolt and he's going to lead this revolutionary freedom, you know, fight to set the whole land free. But he's captured and he's chained to these two pillars and he's in the middle of the city and all the people gather around him and they mock him as the son of Zeus. And what do we expect the hero to do? We expect the hero to summon that last bit of strength and he breaks the chains and the pillars come down with it and he starts swinging it and then he destroys all of his enemies and he wins the day, the king conquers and all is right in the world. You see, those are the movies that make money. Why? Because we expect kings to conquer, not die. We expect kings to win, not suffer. And so when we look at someone who is claiming to have all authority on heaven and earth and we see them suffering, we don't understand. You know why? Because I know the way that we usually approach suffering and hardship in our own life. We believe that if Jesus is king, then we should never suffer. We mock Jesus by saying, if you really are king, then why is this happening to me? If I have lived a good life and Jesus is king, then why do I have all these troubles? We know how life ought to go, and this is not it. So Jesus could not be the king of the universe. What did the robbers demand? They demanded to get off the cross. And if we're honest, we all pray a similar prayer. If you're the Christ, then do this for me. If you're really God, then let me pass this test. If you're really who you say you are, let me get this promotion. If you're the king of the universe, make this woman fall in love with me. (laughs) Prove it. Prove it that you're powerful, that you're good, and you're loving. Friends, let me just say this. It's okay in suffering and in pain and trouble in a fallen and broken world to cry out, Why and how long, O Lord? We should lament over living in a fallen and a broken world corrupted by sin. But friends, let me encourage you to do it in the right position. Do it as a son before a father. Do it as the created before the creator. Don't be tempted to do it, as C.S. Lewis says, to put God in the dock and to put Him on trial. Cry out to God. Pray to Him how long, but do so from the right position. The depth of this mocking reveals the mocking in all our hearts. It's why we just sang, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. You see, everyone needs a Savior because everyone has a beastly, selfish heart. Condemned criminals, religious leaders, judges and soldiers all need grace. Grace we don't just need a little bit of grace we need a lot of it so where are we going to get that grace friends all the grace that we need flows from the cross of Christ and that's the third section the grace of the derision you see apart from grace we are going to look at the cross and think it is utter foolishness that God could be saving the world The thieves don't understand. The bystanders don't understand. The soldiers don't understand. The religious leaders don't understand. What did Paul call the cross? A stumbling block. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus is foolishness to the world. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is one who is hung on a tree. They're cursed by God. And this is the prevalent thought that Jesus couldn't be who he was Because God wouldn't allow his son to go through this. But you see, for the Christian, the cross becomes beautiful. It becomes the power and the wisdom of God when you understand that Jesus was innocent, but he was suffering for us, he was taking our punishment. You know, Matthew quotes from Psalm 22 throughout this section of Scripture. Why does he do that? He's proving to a Jewish audience that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah to come even though he was suffering. That he was willingly laying down his life. That no one was taking his life from him. You know that at any moment, there were tens and thousands of angels waiting for Jesus to say, go. And it would have been done. It's like the song we just sang. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was the love. It was the love for the Father and for His will and for His glory. And it was the love for the world that kept Jesus on the cross. Why did He have to suffer as a criminal? Because He became a criminal for us. It wasn't an act of weakness that He was on the cross. It was an act of strength that He stayed there. Do you remember the curse in Genesis 3? That when Adam and Eve sinned, a curse came on the land. And the curse was that all of us would die. And so Jesus is taking that curse. He is cursed. And he is paying the debt of sin that we owe on the cross. And only when, and only when, when you understand that, will the gospel become beautiful. Will the cross become meaningful in your life. And you see, friends, it becomes not an obstacle or a stumbling block, but the cross becomes attractive. He proves his infinite grace not by coming down from the cross, but by staying there. And friends, when we suffer, and when we are mocked as Christians, how do we endure it? We do like Paul says in Second Corinthians 12. Remember he says he was given a thorn in the flesh? We don't know what it was, but it was weakness and it was suffering. And he pleads with God to take it away. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How did the sufferings of Paul keep from making him bitter? He looked at the sufferings of his Savior and the thorns that his Savior endured. And he could conclude if our God suffers on the cross for us, then God is great enough and loving enough to know more how my life ought to go than me. You see, in the story of beauty and the beast, we are the beast and the beauty is the gospel. And Jesus dying on the cross will change us. The beauty changes the beast by kissing the beast. But Jesus does more than that. He trades places with us. He becomes the beast and we become the beauty. And when we realize that, Our lives are transformed and our vision at MPC is realized. We look like Jesus and people catch a glimpse of heaven on earth as the gospel transforms us, our community, our church, our city, and our world for His glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's an ugly thing for us to stare at the cross to see your holiness and to see our beastliness our selfishness our jerkiness but father help us to see that you have conquered it because you came and you died on the cross for our sins that we are free that we are forgiven that we are loved that we are adopted and father help us to see the cross as the power and wisdom of God, so that we will not stumble. In Jesus' name, amen.